I'd like us to bow for a minute of, of silence and meditation, and then I'll close with a brief prayer. Prepare our hearts, O Lord. Prepare our minds. And prepare our hands and our feet. So that we may be servants of yours. For it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Have you ever given any thought to the question as to why you consider yourself to be a Christian? Let me rephrase that. Have you ever considered why you consider yourself to be a disciple? Have you ever considered why you think of yourself as one who comes after Jesus and follows him as opposed to some other or none at all. We were taught that. We learned it at our mothers and fathers' knees. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. How many of us, for how many of us is that? Have, have we ever paused to question that fact? Hmm. Have we ever doubted to the extent that we wondered if perhaps it's all a big hoax? Or as C.S. Lewis said of Jesus, either he was what he said he was or he was absolutely insane. And which one is it? <laughs> that Jesus was what Jesus said he was. That's another question. That's a good point, because that's really what we're working on here. Who was he? Who is this, is the question that underlies the first half of the book of Mark. There's not unanimity of opinion about that. Even among the disciples, we will see there is disagreement. 
much less among those who were in the crowds, more particularly those who are Jesus' various opponents, who have come to their own conclusion about him. Uh, in some ways, not in all ways by any means, but in some ways it's a disadvantage to have, in a sense, had no other choice presented to us uh, from day one. Because it may be that we just thought, well, why even think about it? Uh, take it for granted. Uh, I think one of the reasons this gospel was written was to help the earliest Christians make up their minds about him and more importantly decide whether they were going to follow him and be called, be named after him. Because that was a, I maintain that was a far more difficult choice for them to make than it is for most of us. Because it involved, to a greater extent, a renunciation of a way of life, or of various ways of life, because people came from various places, in order to follow him. Which is one reason the theme of repentance is is so pronounced in this gospel. Repentance in the sense of the word to turn around, to face in a different direction, um, to change your mind, to change your way of life. Now, last week, <clears throat> I mentioned, some of you I think had to leave a little early, but I mentioned the fact that in the first chapter, um, right after, um, soon after the call of the first disciples, Jesus is engaged in his preaching ministry and his healing. Um, he encounters this leper, and the word in Greek is splanknithes, which means double meaning, have compassion, but the other side of that is to have a sense of righteous indignation, of righteous anger at the state in which he finds the leper. And it's not just because he has leprosy, that's bad enough, but it is because once having contracted leprosy, the leper is forbidden to be part of the community faith. He is a signal figure of all the unclean who were to be separated from the clean, the righteous from the unrighteous. And Jesus is indignant about this. And one of the things we discover about him is that he takes up company with, for the most part, outcasts of various sorts. 
he is associating mainly with the unclean. And one of the first people he calls into his service is one called a tax collector by the name of Levi, who is absolutely despised because he has made the ultimate compromise with the enemy, working for the enemy as a tax farmer, collecting taxes on behalf of Caesar from the Jews, and is therefore considered um, to have become unclean. He is a traitor. He is a, um, well, let's just put it in the vernacular. He's the scum of the earth. And Jesus calls him to be a disciple. Scandal. And not only that, but that's just the beginning. The people who come to him for the most part are those who are on the edge of society. They are the untouchables. They're the poor. Um, and so it's not surprising that in the unfolding of this story, there is going to be opposition to him because he's building a movement within Judaism that runs counter to the central commitments of the leadership of Judaism, in particular the temple cult and all that goes with that, and that's both a political as well as a an ecclesiastical institution, there was not any separation of church and state in the first century in Judaism. Um, <clears throat> now with that as a backdrop, we, we begin to notice some things happen. I'm just going to point out a few, and, uh, and we're, we're not going to be able to look at it all, but to capture some themes and then we'll dig down deeply into several passages. Um, <clears throat> Notice in chapter 2 and verse 15, it says, He sat at table in, 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 the, in his house, in Levi the son of Alphaeus, the tax collector, having asked him to follow me, the same he said to the other disciples. Um, he sat at table in his house, which of course is the sign of the most intimate communion there can be. This is real acceptance. Um, many tax collectors and sinners were sitting with Jesus and his disciples. The word sinner, of course, does, is another way of saying the unclean. They follow him. They follow him. And Mark is suggesting that they are on the road to becoming disciples. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the unclean and tax collectors, says to his disciples, this is often the way politicians work, they first, they don't go to the source often of where the conflict lies, they go to the henchmen first, or they go to the, their surrogates, or they'll pick at, um, they'll, they'll threaten the ones who are the, um, you know, part of the movement, but 
won't deal head-on with the leadership. Not at this point, anyway. So he says, they say to the disciples, why do you eat, or why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, what is the implication of that question for the disciples? Picture yourself there for a minute. You have dared to make this choice, to follow this man. He's already into a mess of trouble with the authorities. And they, some of them come to you and single you out and say, why is he eating with these sinners and tax collectors? What's behind that question? Why? It's a, it's, what a, it's a deflective question. Instead of asking directly, why are you following Jesus? The question is, why is Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors? Of course, they want to implicate him ultimately. But they don't ask him the question. They ask them the question, which of course puts them immediately on the spot. What if they give an answer to that question? What's the answer going to be? When you say they, who are you speaking of? They, they, who? The disciples or, or the, or the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, the leaders of Judaism? Are you asking about? Well, they all knew about the, the expectation for the coming of the Messiah, yes. But the question is, who is the Messiah? And what kind of Messiah? So they had an idea of what Messiah should be. He shouldn't be eating with these dirty people. Perhaps. You mean from the point of view of the rulers? Yeah. Uh, certainly. Jesus wasn't the only one claiming to be. No, by no means. By no means. And, but the question behind the question, who is this, is the question of the Messiah. And how will we know when we see him? So by asking, by questioning the legitimacy of Jesus being the Messiah, weren't they trying to, to divide the disciples? Absolutely. If they can get the disciples, wear them down, um, plant significant questions into their, into their minds about the fate of this new movement, and particularly with respect to the one they're following, question his authority to be doing what he's doing. Then he can divide them. They can divide them. They can, what is their ultimate goal, and this is stated in several places in we're going to see one of them in just a second. What is the ultimate goal of the rulers here? What are they, what are they trying to do? What do most politicians try to do when insurrectionist movements occur? Various kinds. Not saying that this is like any other insurrectionist movement, but 
Generally speaking, when a ruler, ruling elite feels threatened, what do they do? Yeah, they, they're going to have to do something about this. They're going to get rid of them. And so then there's this interlude um, this question about the relationship of, the fair, of uh, John's disciples to Jesus on the, on the matter of fasting um, and, and Jesus as the bridegroom is a metaphor for something new is happening here. There's a wedding taking place between Jesus and his followers and um, there is a, a great deal of controversy around his, his teachings about, about the Jewish law as it is being interpreted by the scribes and the Pharisees. And that is in the background behind all these texts, and you see it occasionally, when he takes them on and they take him on. And um, so they're, they're trying to gauge him in a dispute over the differences between uh, John's practices of fasting and the disciples of Jesus who do not fast. And it's, um, in many ways, it's, 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 a, it's a way of sidetracking from the real questions here, as we will see. The real questions have not to do with these minor things, um, but have to do with the authority of the one who is doing the teaching. And if he is calling into question some of the practices of Judaism, which he does, in fact, then they are going to start picking away at those interpretations of his teaching first. That's another way to undermine him. Um, what he suggests in the metaphor that, that there's, there's this new wine that's, that has come to birth here, and uh, the old wineskins, which is a veiled reference to the, uh, the Judaism of the day, is simply not going to hold the new wine. And this calls for fresh skins. And then we get into the, immediately into the controversy over the Sabbath, which is an illustration of this very thing about the fresh skins. Um, the, you know, I, there were about 613 different laws pertaining to the Sabbath. You couldn't even know what they all were, much less keep them. And yet it was, um, it was expected that the Sabbath really would be a day of no work whatsoever. And so many different things had to be interpreted as to whether or not they will work. And if you didn't know what they were, it was good a good chance you might violate one of them and you could be sanctioned for it. Well, here's the Sabbath controversy. They're going out through the grain fields. They make their way... As they make their way, his disciples begin to pluck ears of grain. Why? Presumably they're hungry. It's time to eat. Uh, you're not supposed to do that on Sabbath, though. And the Pharisees say to Jesus, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he says to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, and he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God when Abiathar was the high priest and ate the bread of the presence. Now, this is much more significant than eating, plucking an ear of corn out of a field, isn't it? Go into the Holy of Holies and take the bread of the presence and eat that because they were hungry. 
And uh, I mean, it, it, can, you, can you imagine how this sets them back in the argument for a second? I mean, suddenly, he, they thought they were going to trap him over an ear of corn, and suddenly he's got them back in the temple in the presence of the Holy of Holies, and, uh, and, and, and David uh, eating of the bread of the presence. And that was not lawful for the priest to do. So they broke, so David broke the law. And he gave it to those who were with him because they were hungry. And then he says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man, which is another self-designation, his preferred one, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, the problem with growing up having heard that from Sunday school all the way through, it's kind of one of those, it's like hearing a song for the 50th time. You don't even hear the words anymore. But that was a jarring statement for him to make within that context. Who was Lord of the Sabbath? God. And who interprets what God does about the Sabbath? The scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus claims he's Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he can make the, he can make the rules about the Sabbath now. He can change them. So he enters the synagogue and there's this man with a withered hand. And he heals him. When? On the Sabbath. And it's interesting. They were watching him. They were looking for just an instance in which they could convict him of breaching the law. And so they, they encounter Jesus and he says to them, um, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? save life or to kill life. He puts them on the spot. It says they were silent. Well, why have they gone silent here? I mean, is there not an easy answer to that question? They're damned if they do and damned if they don't. I mean, either way they answer this. He looks around at them, and here's the word again of anger. He's grieved at their hardness of heart. He says to the man with the hand, he says, stretch your hand out. The man stretches. I mean, he's defying them right in front of them. He's saying, we're going to do this healing right here in your presence on the Sabbath day. We will test not only the law, we will test you, scribes and Pharisees, as to your interpretation of the law. And he stretches his hand out, and it's restored. And then it says, by way of narrative, the Pharisees go out, and immediately, there's that word again, they held counsel with the Herodians, those of the, the leading political party in Judaism that had conspired with the Romans. They counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. Because it's very clear now, he is a rebel in their midst. Obviously, because that was much, and that's one of the ironies here. That's one of the ironies here. 
And that's why he asked the question, what is the Sabbath for? Is, is it for, uh, in our service or, or are we in the service of the Sabbath? Uh, yeah, the most important thing is the man was healed. But they can't see that. What's important to them is to keep the institution as it is. Unless we be too harsh on them. How often does that happen in the course of history? Including our own. Uh, we've even used the Bible sometimes, as these are the scribes and Pharisees, to justify why certain changes ought not to be made in relationship to certain people. We can use your imaginations about that. How did the church justify slavery? Quoting scripture. The institution of slavery. So that's just take that one, it's a big one. Wow. You get a sense for the high drama here. It moves on. They go through Galilee. Um, and they move on out to the edges of it into the, into the Gentile, land of the Gentiles, where there is a significant Roman presence and the unclean spirits encounter Jesus. They recognize him. They pronounce him to be the Son of God. Um, then there's the mission of the twelve. They're sent out in twos. Um, I haven't got time to, wish I did, to delve into all of this, but I do want to pause. Uh, I want to pause for a minute to look in chapter 5 at the Gerasene demoniac because it's representative of the kind of what's at the heart of this mission. And he's already told some parables about the kingdom of God and what that is like, one of them being um, the um, parable of the mustard seed and the sower and how the word is going to fall on a lot of unreceptive ground. Um, and there's going to be high resistance, and we've already seen evidence of that, to his, his mission. But after that, um, we encounter this episode with the Gerasene demoniac. Now, Garris, that's an area on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. It's in what's called the Decapolis of ten cities, which were a very key post, outpost for the Roman rule. And, um, and, and anyone who was reading this story at that time would have noted that immediately, that this is a this, this is way, this is moving way out of the center of Jerusalem, away from the center of Jerusalem, into the country, not only the Gentiles, but Gentiles being considered among the unclean. Jesus has placed himself right in the midst of the territory of the unclean. And they come to the other side of the lake and the, and, and the country of the Gerasenes, and when he'd come out of the boat, there met him... Um, 
out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who'd lived among the tombs, and no one can bind him anymore, even with a chain. He was mad. He was insane. Um, but the chains the man was able to wrench apart, the fetters he broke in pieces, no one had the strength to subdue the man. Night and day among the tombs on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. By the way, I've seen people like this in, um, in the mental ward of Grady Hospital in Atlanta when I was in training uh, in my clinical pastoral education. I've seen this kind of behavior. So, um, I even met one time the uh, Queen Elizabeth I. He really thought that he was Queen Elizabeth I. I also met Jesus in that, in that uh, ward, a man who thought he was Jesus. Um, and I met people who were inflicting wounds on themselves. Uh, had to be chained down because they were violent and could hurt others that were in the ward. So this is, you know, it's not just an ancient phenomenon. Um, so here is someone who is very frightening, by the way. And that's what, you, as you hear this story, you get a sense of anxiety, at least I do. What's going to happen? This guy's on the loose and he's not controllable. And Jesus sees him from afar or rather he sees Jesus from afar, and he runs and he worships him. By the way, some of the most religious places in the whole world are psychiatric wards. Have you ever noticed that if you've worked on one? Religion comes easy to those people. I had a woman one time who was having a psychotic episode, pull her Bible out, and open to some passages. I wish I could remember what it was. It was somewhere in the Old Testament. She pointed right to that passage. She says, that is God's word to me. This man comes and worships Jesus and cries out with a loud voice. He says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, the son of the most high God? See, he recognizes who he is. He's answered the question, who is this? Um, and he says to Jesus, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. In other words, leave me alone. This is not someone who is, while he's on the one hand ready to worship Jesus, he does not want to be unduly unsettled by Jesus. He says to him, Jesus says to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus asked him, and here's the turning point. We already know what, the man's name, what name the man's given to Jesus. And up till this point, it's just a demoniac from Gerasa like any other possible insane person he encounters who has an unclean spirit within him and Jesus heals him of the unclean spirit. And you can stop right there and you can hear this story simply on that level. Jesus going around and healing the unclean. But then some, suddenly something happens here. 
Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he says, what does he say? My name is Legion. What is that? Hmm? We are many. How many? What's the legion? Four to six thousand. Of what? Soldiers. Whose? Yes. Now the setting has suddenly, the scene has shifted here. It has suddenly broadened out to a much bigger playing field, if you will. The issues that are suddenly at stake here in terms of the demonic are much bigger than we thought. We thought we were just dealing with a singular individual who was insane for temporarily, living in the tombs. And suddenly he, he, he reveals the fact that his name is Legion, which is Mark's way of saying, you, to hear the symbolism, imagine the Hurley Church under the persecution of Rome. Armies are everywhere. The crosses are everywhere. They line the roads. This is the common way of Roman execution. They do it as a public display because it discourages you from doing the kind of things Jesus was doing. So, my name is Legion. We are many. The demonic, beloved, is all around us. It's all around us. It is legion. I sat yesterday listening to a lecture by a former intelligence officer who had written a book called After Fidel. Any of you hear that on C-SPAN too? In my opinion, it's the most important, if you've got a television, it's the most important channel on television. Unless you happen to have DirecTV and you can get a few other channels that will tell you some things you'll never hear on the main network. Anyway, I'm listening to this guy talk about the atrocities Beginning with the time when Fidel and his brother Raul were in Mexico training for the revolution in Cuba against Somoza. And the first thing, after they had this major gathering, it's sort of like, not unlike Al-Qaeda, you know, in a training camp. Fidel is the leader, and Raul is the brother who is the right-hand man. And there was a guy in the group with them that Fidel had some questions about. Because he figured at some point this guy was going to betray them to the enemy. If not Somoza, then perhaps the United States or somebody else. So on, at the end of the meeting, 
Fidel looks at Raul quietly and he says, before we leave Mexico, I want you to execute so-and-so. And, and it happened. He blew his brains out. And on the way back to Cuba, driving in his Jeep, Raul, the brother who's now the president of, of Cuba, there was a peasant walking the road. Raul ran him down, killed him, and kept going. Now, I'm telling you this because the first Christians had to deal with that kind of brutality. They were the victims of it. That's how dangerous it was to be a Christian. That's why I said earlier, our choice to be a Christian in our context is nothing compared to what they faced. Now let me tell you another fact. Well, I'll save that. We'll get to it in a minute. But I want to move on here. Um, <clears throat> Legion. The demons are everywhere. And Jesus, um, we could spend the next 20 minutes on this one, but... Let me just quickly say that Jesus is put in control of the demons here. He casts them out um, into a herd of swine, pigs, some 2,000 in number, who rush down the steep bank into the sea, and in with them, in them, go the demons. Now, this is a symbolic metaphor because it's a very powerful one because the sea is considered to be the domain of Satan. It is, it's where the sea monsters live, Leviathan. It is where the demons come from in ancient first century worldview mythology. And so what it's suggesting here is that, that, that Jesus has the authority to put these demons back in their place. And indeed he does. But the subtle message here is that the demons we're now dealing with are the ones the church is facing. How will the church remain faithful to the gospel in a setting that is so extraordinarily hostile to the, to the gospel, in which there are legions of demons, so to speak, who are working against this small, rather insignificant number of people and would like to squelch them all together. And we note the, the fact of fear here. After what, after the, this, this occurrence with the, the demons, and we're back now, Jesus sees the demoniac sitting there clothed in his right mind and the man who had the legion and they were afraid. Um, fear is a real thing, isn't it? It's a, 
it's one of the most powerful emotions there is. It can drive us to all kinds of bad decisions sometimes, but it can also be a, a warning signal of what danger lies ahead and what we must be therefore careful, very careful about as we proceed in anything we do, but in this particular case we're talking about discipleship. Um, then there is the section of when Jairus, um, one of the rulers of the synagogue, falls at Jesus' feet and brings his daughter who's at the point of death, lays his hands, Jesus lands his hands on her. But this story is interrupted with the woman who has a hemorrhage. And it's interesting that the story is interrupted. There have been various interpretations of this. I like, uh, I like one of the authors who says, um, with Jesus, interruptions are, are every day. Um, and sometimes the real ministry that must occur in the moment is the one that occurs in relation to the interruption. Not what you were planning to do or already doing, but what suddenly shows at your doorstep that that's what you must deal with. Um, but more than that, it's, uh, it, it places in suspense what's going to happen to this daughter of Jairus. Um, she's at the point of death. Now, it, it's not just the daughter of Jairus because we've got to see ourselves through these people. I mean, this is also the church at the point of death. The, uh, daily. And then there's this woman who runs up to him and touches his garment and believes she can be made well. And he could have ignored her, but he didn't. I mean, he could have just let her touch him and she could have gone on and he could have gone on to finish his work with Jairus' daughter. But no, he took the time to address this woman and he, he, um, he says to you, your, your faith has made you well. He also calls her daughter. Now, daughter is, a, is not a very far stretch from son, child, <coughs> disciple, one who follows. Uh, you might say that here are a few more being made disciples. They happen to be women, which is astonishing uh, as the story continues, because women weren't supposed to be in his company as disciples. So then he heals, he, he comes back after the heal, healing the woman with the uh, hemorrhage. Oh, by the way, I meant to say, um, you notice that it says about her that she'd been to all kinds of physicians and none of them had done her any good? I can tell you as a psychotherapist, I've heard that story a thousand times. And I'm interested in the fact here that that what she says to what it says that she says to him is that she told him the whole truth and it's a, it is it's in, the implication is until you are unburdened of the whole truth you can't get well something keeping you sick if if it hasn't been confessed we don't know what it was but she was certainly considered unclean under Jewish ritual law because she was hemorrhaging. 
So once again, he's in contact with someone he should not have been in contact with. She should have been dealing solely with the physicians and then ultimately the priests in the temple to certify that she was no longer unclean. So then back to Jairus' daughter, um, the ruler, they note, uh, he's, he's still speaking, and there come from the ruler's house some who say, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? But they ignore what they said, and, <coughs> and they say to the ruler, do not fear, only believe. There's a persistent theme throughout this gospel, and it's, it can be encapsulated in two words, believe and faith, or trust. And it so happens this girl had died. It was too late. And it's sort of like when Jesus showed up at the tomb of... Um, of Martha's brother, Martha's, um, that, uh, Lazarus, Martha's brother, got there too late. And if he'd only gotten there sooner, maybe he would have kept him from dying. Same true here. But the message in this is, it doesn't matter whether you died. Well, it matters, but I mean, it's not the end of the story. What does he do? What, what happens to Jairus' daughter? He looks at her. He says, now she's lying there dead. He says, he takes her by the hand. He says, little girl, Talitha kumi, which means little girl in the Aramaic. I say to you, arise. Here's one of the first indications of the resurrection right here. It's as though Mark is saying by telling this story, he's saying to the church in the difficult time in which it's living, keep the faith. Don't lose hope. Even though there are many dying around you, some of them are your kinsmen, keep the faith because at the end of the day we shall all rise from the dead. And then we encounter in the next section King Herod. This is a story of which Hollywood movies have been made. And I'm going to end with this one today because um, we don't have more time. But we're going to pick up here, and we're going to then hop, we're going to hop, skip, and jump for the next two weeks through some significant passages that will take us eventually to the very last words of this gospel, which are rather interesting um, in light of what we will have already covered by that point in time. Here is King Herod, um, who has taken John the Baptist into prison another one of these insurrectionist movements, I've got to put a stop to it. And <clears throat> as it turns out, 
Herod, it says, feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. He kept him safe. When he heard him, he was much perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and leading men of Galilee. And Herodias' daughter came in and danced. She pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you wish, and I will grant it. He vows to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give you, even half my kingdom. She went out and says to her mother, what shall I ask? She says, the head of John the Baptist. What's this about? Well, John the Baptist had done a rather daring thing. Um... You go back to verse 17. Herod had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her and committed adultery. And John says, this is not lawful. This is not a good thing you've done. And for that, Herodias decided to ask Herod for John's head, and she got it. And once again, this ratchets up the high drama in this story because now, once again, we are seeing how dangerous it is to be associated with either John or with Jesus. And By the time we get to chapters 8, 9, and 10, which I want you, if you haven't read them, take a look at them between now and next week, because that, those are the turning points in the gospel, called the watershed passages, in which the disciples must eventually come to a decision about who he is and whether or not they're going to follow him in the way that he wants them to. In the meantime, we will see here, and you can read it on your own, the uh, passage regarding the um, feeding of the multitudes. And there's a lot to be said about that, but I'll leave one thought with you. Um, that as much as anything, it is a symbol of what the church is supposed to be doing. It is what servanthood is about. It's what our ministry and mission is about in the world. And Jesus uses this as a teaching opportunity with the disciples to help them understand what their mission is. And he puts them to the test by asking them how much bread and fish they have. And then he multiplies it. And there's a lot more we can say about that, but just consider for the fact just consider the fact that this passage is a critical one in helping to define the mission of the church. Then, now, and note the fact that it comes in a sequence here just after um, this episode when John loses his head. The other Gospels put this, this beheading of John earlier at the end of his ministry. 
Mark keeps it, brings it forward into the midst of the ministry of Jesus' disciples and in, in, in the context of just having recently healed the legions of demons and now the confrontation with, in a way, you could say the demon of all demons, Herod himself. And, and then there is this moment where Jesus is teaching the disciples what they must really be doing. And that is feeding the thousands. And this is going to cause him more trouble than anything else. Let me leave you with two images to ponder. They're related and they're unrelated. That is, they're unrelated and they're not in the text, but they're related because I think they, they, they demonstrate the contrasts that are here. On the one hand, you have the stark political realities of first century Rome and Judaism in which the church is caught up and in, under the persecution of the Romans. And on the other, you have the church's mission to feed the multitudes. Did you know? You know I'm sure you've all heard about this enterprise over here in, in, uh, near Concord that's sending food out. His, his last name is Davidson. I forget his first. He's not a relative, but um, uh, it's a they've been gathering food for a number of years and in huge quantities and sending it around the world to different need, people need and there's another organization called bread for the world contrast that with what caesar is doing did you know that right now in farmville virginia just outside of farmville the united states government under the homeland security division is building a detention camp that will house 500 males, no families, no children, no wives, only the men. It's going to have the dual purpose of being a detention and deportation center. And that's just a drop in the bucket. There are over 800 of them already in this country, all over the country, in all the states. I've seen a list of them. There are more being built. There are two, country, two comp companies, I've yet to find the names of them, but they are, they are contracted with the government to build railroad cars that will transport immigrants and dissidents, or anyone the government wants to imprison, into these detention camps. Some of those railroad cars have shackles inside of them. Is that reminiscent of anything you heard about before? happening in this country. And the reason I'm mentioning is because I want us to start thinking about the significant contrast between the way the church operates in feeding the multitudes and the way Caesar operates. Not unlike the Caesars of the first, second, third, and fourth centuries. All in the name of the security of the Roman Empire. Friends, we are living in an increasingly dangerous time. And one of the things that reading this gospel over and over has forced me to come to grips with is this question. Are we prepared as a church 
in the 21st century to live in a totalitarian society called the United States of America? And if so, or if not, how shall we comport ourselves as Christians? And will we then be reconsidering Indeed, like the first century Christians, whether or not we do want, in fact, to be disciples of Jesus. Think about it, and we'll pick it up there next week. Go in peace.